I don't know about you, but I love this church. God's doing amazing things here, and it's such a privilege to be part of this. What We get to be part of the work of God. Do you understand that in your lifetime? You get to watch God at work taking something that was just a small handful of people and saying, okay, God, do what you will, and boom. Who knew? Three years later, it's just amazing to be part of this. To say that discipleship is a high value here is an understatement of gigantic proportions. So the reason we offer the classes that we're offering, like you watch the Truth Project video and the classes you can sign up for today, man, those are huge opportunities to be able to take your life and shape it and understand fully God's nature and character as you study his word. It's just the coolest thing to be part of. Michael and I um, were going back and forth over the last couple of weeks about who gets to tell the New Hope story this morning, and I won because senior pastor, you know, so <laughs> I get veto power. Um, before I do that, though, and, and before we step into this, this study this morning, I, I just want to take a minute and pray with you, okay? So let's just put our heart in that place where we're ready to hear what God has to say to us this morning. Would you bow with me? Father, I ask first of all that you just still our hearts. It's great to be part of the music and to raise our voices in song. But it's really hard to beat the quietness of a moment like this. So we gratefully declare you as king and we do it joyfully in song. But we really want to know about you and your nature and character as you've revealed it in your word. So Father, in spite of me being a man, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in one who is redeemed by the King and that you would reveal truth through the words that I share this morning and that you would speak to your church in such a way that everyone will know that they have experienced a better understanding of your nature and character especially as it's revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, we come before you as uh, willing individuals who've taken time out of our day to sit before you and examine your word, things that were written such a long time ago. Use your Holy Spirit now, Father. Brood over this auditorium. Give us capacity to see things we would not see on our own. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We looked last week at um, intentional love. We're just taking three weeks to do this thing called pushing the envelope. If you're new to New Hope, you may not know that we've been doing this 32-week study through the book of Revelation and um, taking kind of a bold step, (laughs) trusting God to speak through that book to all of us. It's just so much mystery in the book. And, and I trust that after 32 weeks, you're, you're seeing this picture come together about how God is doing his work and preparing things for the end times. But I thought, man, with this three-year anniversary thing coming up, I can't just blow right through that and teach right through Revelation without taking time to step back and see how God acts on our behalf because we get to be part of this thing. So last week, we looked at Jesus' bold actions with his love, intentional love toward us. 
And this week, we get to look at something in which he's really bold in his behavior. And it's a cool, cool story. As I'm working through this text, I'm seeing the New Hope story all over it. About three and a half years ago, maybe almost four years ago, I had resigned my position with another church in town. I'd been there eight years. And um, very briefly, if you don't know the story, I'd just taken a year off and, and was doing other work wondering what God was going to do next. And in that period of time, I came here to meet with a group of people who were meeting for a study, a Bible study on a Sunday night. And there was just a handful of us. And the senior pastor who was here at that time um, was overseeing a, a group of people of about 20 people who were still meeting here. It was called Grace Fellowship. But they had agreed as a church, the 20 of them or so, um, in October of that year, if, if God doesn't do something dramatic here, we're going to have to close our doors. It was only about four weeks after they had had that discussion that I was here for this study. And in the midst of that, uh, the pastor came up to me and said, have you ever considered starting a new church? And I said, no. As a matter of fact, a lot of people had warned me away from doing that. And I said, no, no, it never entered my mind. Um, he said, you know, if you'd be willing to consider launching a new church, we would give you this facility. Whoa. Didn't see that coming. Went out in the parking lot with a friend afterwards. We were here for the study together. Uh, a Jewish scholar was speaking here by the name of Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and we left, went out in the parking lot, and I told Randy what had been happened, what happened, how that unfolded. And he said, wow, sounds like God's up to something. We should pray about that. To my shame, I said, you go ahead and pray about that. I'm going home. Yeah, because I was not that open to it. Got home, told my wife. I've been in ministry my entire life, okay, my adult life. Age 23, stepped into occupational ministry right on through to my 40s. And I was ready to kind of, you know, step back. Went home, told my wife, said, Lori, you won't believe what the pastor at this church said tonight. I said, I never met the guy before. And he said, if you'd be willing, we'll give you this facility. She said, wow, sounds like something we should pray about. <laughs> oh, I hate when God is so consistent like that. And I knew, I knew if I prayed about it that he was going to do something. Because, you know, that's the fear we have. God, make me more bold. No, I don't want to be more bold, so I won't pray about it. God, make me more compassionate. No, I don't want to pray about that because he'll make me more compassionate. And the things he has to do to conform us is what I'm, you know, scared of, okay? So a lot of my friends in ministry had said, don't ever start a church. It'll be the worst thing, worst experience of your life. It's the hardest thing. They were wrong. They were absolutely wrong. It's been the best experience. So um, through a series of times of prayer, meeting with some friends, talking about what is God going to do? Is he up to something? Um, in April of 2007, we tried it. We experimented for a few months. It started with just 40 of us. In September of that year, we said, okay, it's a public thing. Let's launch. So three years ago this week, we said, okay, God, do what you're going to do. Just a handful of us. And now, who knew God was going to do what he did. Never saw it coming. I wish I could say to you that I was bold on God's behalf because I saw the whole thing coming. I didn't. I didn't know exactly what he was going to do. Here we see this morning this expression of boldness by Jesus and how he's showing us 
we have to be bold to advance the kingdom of God. Look with me on the screen at an American dictionary definition for boldness. Boldness, the trait of being willing to undertake things that involve risk or danger. The quality of standing out distinctly. To be bold in your life requires one very important element. You have to be confident of the outcome. Not that you know the outcome, but that you have to be confident of the outcome. Let me explain it this way. When Paul said, God, I'm willing, take me to Rome. I want to preach to the Romans. Paul was willing. He was willing to exert the effort. He had no idea that God was going to take him to a place where he wanted to be a preacher as a prisoner in handcuffs and chains and that it would be the end of his life. See, my responsibility is to put forth the effort, to put forward the bold step and allow God to control the outcome because he's the one who works things together for good. That's what scripture says, Romans 8.28. That's what it says. Look up on the screen. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So my role is to be responsible for the effort. Don't you love it when someone is bold and you get to watch it? Like when a coach named Mark D'Antonio in the last few seconds, okay? You understand if you didn't watch the game last night? Now, I went to bed at halftime. I was thinking, well, oh, yeah, uh-huh, okay? So I went to bed at halftime because it's Saturday night, and I'm doing the pastor thing, and i got to be refreshed for my church the next morning. So I sacrificed on your behalf. I just want you to know. Okay, so I go to bed at halftime. There's 7-7. I'm thinking this is going to be a real sleeper of a game. I kid you not, I talked to my daughter at 7.15 this morning. I don't know why she was up so early, but she said, first thing, not even good morning, Dad. It was, Dad, do you know what happened last night? And I said, no. She said, in the last few seconds, instead of a field goal, they threw a touchdown and won the game. Okay, Dan Antonio could have been a fool, but he turned out to be a hero. He made a bold, gutsy call. Even the other coach acknowledged it. What a gutsy call. He didn't know what the outcome was going to be. His responsibility was to put forth the effort. That's what God calls us to do, to be bold on his behalf, to step forward and say, I am willing to be bold. God, I'm going to give you the effort. You take it and shape it and do with it what you will. So there's this word in the New Testament, as you might imagine, in Greek that explains the word bold for us. Look with me up on the screen. Bold is parousia. Look at the definition for it. All out. Everything you've got. All in. All out by implication, assurance, boldness of speech, boldly, behavior, confidence. Confident that the outcome is part of a bigger picture that you can't quite see yet. So when you take that bold step on God's behalf, you're confident that it's on behalf of the kingdom, but you're not sure exactly what the outcome is going to be. 
So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to look at this bold action. Open them up to Matthew chapter 21. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, you'll find them in the pew racks this morning. Also, you'll find it. the verses are going to be up on the screen. If you don't happen to own a Bible, that's why those Bibles are there, for you to take one with you when you leave today. We want you to have a copy of God's Word, to own His Word, and you can have that. So let's look at this Matthew 21. Now let me set it up for you. This comes into the time known as Passover week. You familiar with Passover week? Just raise your hand if, you're, if you heard the term Passover before. Most of you have, not everybody. Okay, think Super Bowl Sunday, all right? Times seven, because it took place over a period of seven days. It was a huge event in the world of the Jerusalem people. And bigger than the Super Bowl in the sense of the numbers of people that descended on Jerusalem. Now, tradition says that in order to celebrate Passover fully, you had to celebrate it in Jerusalem. You had to come into the holy city, Jerusalem, to really celebrate it. And so during Passover week, only happens once a year, two million people descend on this city from all over the country of Israel. Now, this city in a normal time during that era in the first century would have hosted about 250 to 300,000 people. So they didn't just double their size. They didn't just quadruple their size. They went from 250,000 to 3 million, 2 million, 500,000, somewhere in that range over a period of just a couple days. Can you imagine the tents popping up all around the region? Now, because you had to celebrate within Jerusalem, the mayor of the city, they didn't call him a mayor, but the guy who was the, the, the ruler of this region actually expanded the boundaries of the city limits just for this period of time, for one week. They gave false city limits. And so it encompassed all the bedroom communities like Bethany and Jericho and drew them into the region just during Passover time so that everybody could be counted as being staying in Jerusalem for Passover. As we approach this text this morning, Matthew 21 this is the point in which you've heard about if you grew up in church at which Jesus entered the city on Palm Sunday. Tradition tells us, and some of the historians have done the research, that as many as 200,000 people gathered around Jesus on Palm Sunday as he made the descent down the hillside into the city. He's riding this colt. Scripture says in prophecy that when the king arrives into Jerusalem, he will not just ride this donkey, but he'll ride a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so he's approaching the city like a king because Scripture said that's the way he would enter. And he comes in the midst of this crowd, and there's a celebration like had not been seen in not just years, but centuries since the time of David. So pick with me up, you'll see it up on the screen, Matthew 21 and verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on their coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. You notice that it says, All the city was stirred? Millions of people 
were aware that this huge crowd started on the hillside and are working their way down into the city, yelling a military term. Hoshana! Hoshana! Meaning, our military leader has arrived. That's the name that was to be given to the Messiah when they saw him arrive. So we say Hosanna today because of our English pronunciation, but Hoshana means the military leader, the one who is going to conquer. This is a spectacular event unfolding. And these individuals don't know that Jesus is about to push the envelope again, and he's pushing it in such a way that they never saw it coming. I want you to look with me at the text very closely because as he enters into the gate, he does something spectacular, shocking, even by today's standards. Understand, they're expecting him to come as a military ruler. Now, during this period of time, Passover meant really big business. Lots of money flowing into the city, just like with Super Bowl, as you would expect. Lots of money coming into the cash registers. And there's some individuals who specifically made lots of money off this event. Look with me at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. This is a spectacular event. They're hoping he'd be a military leader. They're expecting that Jesus is going to go to Pilate's palace. They're thinking he's going to go to the Roman barracks that he's going to take on the Praetorian Guard. No more taxes. We're going to get rid of Rome. No more symbol of the eagle on the shields and on the spears and on the standards. They actually had taken, the Romans had taken a symbol of the eagle, the symbol of Caesar, and put it over the gate that entered into the temple. And it offended the people of Israel greatly. But it was Rome. They could do what they wanted. Notice this. Jesus entered the temple. They wanted him to attack the IRS. He's coming after the house of God. Since the beginning of his ministry, they had seen him heal people, cause blind people to see. The guy can make food. Can you imagine? That's a liberator. That's someone who can turn the economy around. Think about it. He can feed people. He can heal people. He can deal with the politics. They'd seen him shut down the Pharisees. Man, this guy is going to take on the nation. He's going to reshape it. But Jesus came with no weapons. He posted no banners. He didn't even put a bumper sticker on his donkey. Okay? There's no press conference. He goes to the house of God and he attacks those who represented God. Those who appeared to the world as though they're God's people. See, to Jesus, it's not an issue of Roman occupation. It's a matter of heart occupation. Who's got possession of the heart? So Jesus is going right to the very center of it because he sees this corruption that's taken place. He's not concerned with the relationship to Rome. He's concerned with the relationship to God. And so he goes to God's people. He enters this court, the court of the Gentiles, which is filled with thousands of people at this point in time. 
Because of the Passover and because of what I'm about to describe to you, you'll understand that what Jesus did was beyond pushing the envelope. It was so parousia, so bold, that people just didn't know what to do with this. It's so shocking. Let me show you an image on the screen of what the temple looked like in the first century. Now, when we say the temple, it actually means the entire courtyard. So this first wall you see around the outside perimeter is the wall, some of the wall that remains today from Solomon's temple is where they call the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, just a small section of it. So you understand what a huge deal it was when Jesus said at the end of his life, I tell you the truth, not one stone will remain upon another of this great edifice. This was a monstrous structure. This first courtyard that you see, the really big one, is called the Court of the Gentiles. That's where anybody, those of us who are not Jewish and the Jewish people, they could all go through the steps, come up through the stadium, and enter into the Court of the Gentiles. Those tiny little dots, I don't even know if you can see it in the very back of the balcony, but those tiny little dots on there are actual people drawn to size. This is a massive, massive structure. The court of the Gentiles was built in such a way that it would host tens of thousands of people. And get the picture of what Jesus has come into now, this huge, huge structure. And in the midst of that, he drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. Now, you've got to read that phrase and say, what is going on here? Buying and selling in the courtyard. And we're not talking bubblegum here, okay? Let me explain to you what's going on. The high priest who was in control of the temple, who ruled over this region in all of Judaism, his name was Annas, A-N-N-A-S. Some scriptures pronounce it Ananias, but this is one and the same person. This guy, when you think of him, think of the movie The Godfather, okay? Think of the old man in The Godfather. You disrespect the family, you disrespect all of us, okay? Annas is that guy. He's the Godfather. He's the one with the big puffy cheeks, and he's the one who rules over this realm. Now, he's the former high priest, but he still has power. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, has been made the high priest, So just to clear it up for you, when you're reading Scripture and you see Annas' name and Caiaphas' name, they're both in control. They're both referred to as the high priest. And they're both wielding some power over this realm. Now I'm going to describe for you what it meant to have power, but I want you first to see what a historian says about who Annas was. There's an individual by the name of Josephus who lived in this period of time in the first century. And he was hired by the Romans to give a historical account of what life was like in Israel so that they had documented records. The Romans were really big on records. So they hired Josephus to write down a record of who was in power at this time. I've got a quote for you in which Josephus describes Annas. Look with me up on the screen. But for the high priest Ananias, he increased in glory every day, and this to a great degree, for he was a great hoarder up of money. He also had servants who were very wicked, who went to the thrashing floors and took away the tithes by violence and did not refrain from beating such as would not give these tithes to them. So the other high priests acted in like manner as did those his servants without anyone being able to prohibit them so that some of old were wont to be supported, died for want of food. Do you get that? 
Let that settle in for a minute. This guy is so vile, he's allowing the elderly to starve to death so that he can line his pockets. You ever met anybody that vile? That's who Jesus is up against. Now, on top of that, he sold franchise rights to individuals to set up these markets inside the temple courtyard, only in the court of the Gentiles. Now, within this courtyard, he sold these franchise booths. So you get your 10-foot by 10-foot space, and a guy next to you gets his 10-foot by 10-foot space. And what are they selling? They're selling oil, and they're selling cinnamon, and they're selling spices. They're selling lambs, oxen, doves, anything that you would need to carry out the Passover, anything that you needed to celebrate with the temple environment was sold within the temple walls. You've been to a sporting event, like a national football league, and you understand the prices that you pay when you go inside the stadium. And by the way, you can't carry your drinks in with you because, you know, your water might explode or something when you get in there. Okay? So you've got to buy approved beverages when you get inside. Same situation. So he sold these franchises to individuals inside the court of the Gentiles. It was so popular in the region, it was known as the Bazaar of Anus. A-N-N-A-S, meaning his flea market, his courtyard. And on top of selling the franchises, he skimmed off the top a huge percentage of the profits for himself. So he was raking in the money, and Annas and Caiaphas became filthy rich over this. Some scholars indicate that he made as much as $170 million a year. That's a big business. So he's got all these people working for him. Now, on top of that, add to it, you've got to buy your sacrificial animal from these individuals. You also have to give a temple offering. So every time you come to the temple for Passover, every male over 20 years of age had to give an offering to celebrate and worship in the temple. However, you couldn't give your own coinage because, of course, it had Caesar's image on it. You had to trade it in for temple-approved money because it had a high silver content. Where could you get that temple-approved money? Of course, inside the courtyard, the money changers that are sitting at the table. Now, they're making a huge profit because they're charging a 25% fee to exchange your money. I went to Australia earlier this year, back in the spring, and went to Sydney, and I got to the airport, and my wife's really hungry, and I thought, okay, we'll get the rental car, and we'll go to a restaurant. So I thought, well, I'm going to need some money to do this. I have no Australian money on me. I go to one of those little booths inside the airport. You see what's coming, don't you? Okay, I give them $100 American. Now, I'm not the most brilliant mathematician, but when you give somebody $100 American and the exchange rate is so high, I thought, I'll get $123 back Australian. This is pretty good. She hands me back $91. So, oh, wait, 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 wait. No, you, I, I gave you $100. Yes, sir, that's the exchange rate. I said, no, that's not the exchange rate. It should be $123. Oh, the exchange rate plus our fee. Ooh, yeah, okay. Now imagine taking those same emotions and bringing them to the front door of the church. You walk in the church, and in order to give an offering, you've got to exchange your money with somebody standing at the door. Saying, yeah, it's great. We would really want you to support the ministry. But by the way, you've got to give New Hope approved dollars, and they're going to cost you a 25% markup. Okay, you get the feeling of what's going on here. 
This guy had a racket going. He had a system meant to line his pockets. Now, one other detail you need to know. Levitical law required that any animal offered for a sacrifice at the Passover had to be approved by the priest. And so, of course, you couldn't bring your own sheep from your own backyard because by the time you got to the courtyard, the priests are going to reject it because they hold the franchise rights and they get to sell the animals plus make the profit. So it's a racket set up to shortchange people. And Annas controlled this entire environment. Historian Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish historian, said that the average person coming in who needed to buy a lamb when they bought it within the walls of the temple had to pay a 10% markup. No, I'm sorry, 10 times markup, okay? So if a dove cost you a dime out in the street, it cost you a dollar inside the wall of the temple. Are these guys making a lot of money? Absolutely. They're raking in the dollars. And the corruption was deliberate, and it was vile, and it was unconcealed. That's what Jesus is coming into. Now, on top of all of that, Ananias controlled the police department as well. Inside the temple walls were the guards who worked for him. Let me show you an inscription that was discovered in Jerusalem a few years ago. Look at this image, and it has a warning. It's kind of like a no trespassing sign. It was discovered about 20 years ago. Most authorities didn't believe that these signs actually existed, of course, until this one was discovered a few years ago. This is what the temple guards posted for people who wouldn't behave. It's written in Greek, so let me read it for you. No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow immediately. You can't win. They got your money. They got your animals. They got your sacrifice. They got your life. And if you're going to be part of the Jewish community, you got to go here. Understand this. Jesus literally threw these people out of this area called the court of Gentiles. He physically flipped over the tables. He physically chased the ox and the sheep out of this courtyard area. And it wasn't polite. It wasn't like, hey, you guys, you think you can get out of here? No, Scripture says he made whips and he chased them out. He beat them out of the temple before thousands of people. And he turned the bazaar into a shambles flipping the tables upside down and shaming those who profit from it. Can you imagine the confusion? Now, get in your mind how many animals we're talking about here. Ox, sheep, doves riding all over the place. The crates are broken open. I'm thinking in my mind some of those doves actually bombed the priest on their way out. Okay? <laughs> you get the picture? I think that what we're looking at here is just utter chaos and the sheep and the oxen in their mind going, yeah, we're free. We're not going to be sacrificed. Let's get out of here. They're diving for the doors. Everything is running. Historical records indicate that at Passover, as many as 260,000 lambs were slain on Passover day. So you get an image in your mind of how much livestock we're talking about. This is a massive environment. And Jesus showed such power and such control because he was acting on behalf of the kingdom, on behalf of his father. He was so bold, he would not even allow people to take a shortcut through the courtyard. 
Look with me up on the screen. Mark eleven sixteen. Jesus would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. Meaning they couldn't even take the shortcut trying to get the easy way around into downtown Jerusalem. They had to go out and around the temple. That's how much authority he has. Jesus' presence instilled complete submission. Everyone did what they were told. They left. Is it any wonder, church, that Peter wrote in 1 Peter, judgment must begin at the house of God, that in the church itself is where God will deal first? 1 Peter 4.17, he said, judgment must begin at the house of God because the measure of any society is its relationship to God. Any society that succeeds and is what we should say maybe abundant in the world's eyes is a nation who has its relationship right with God. When the church is not in right relationship with God, it is reflected in the nation and everything else is chaos. That's what you see here. Jesus didn't go to Pilate. Jesus went to the house of God and cleaned things up. Frankly, my great concern it was reflected in some eyes of the pastors that I was with on Thursday. I was at this national pastors conference down in South Carolina. 2,000 pastors there. Every single pastor who spoke that day reflected the same thing I've been feeling for years. And that is this. And I don't mean new hope when I say this. The church in general has lost its focus of what we're supposed to be about and is deviating off a track in such a way that it's more concerned with accommodating the things of the world than it is worshiping the King of Kings and proclaiming his name to such a degree. Who cares if they don't like it? Who cares if it causes division? Jesus is showing us exactly what boldness looks like. That's why Peter said judgment begins at the house of God. This is where it needs to start. So I'm convinced that if Jesus was here today on earth, on planet earth, he wouldn't be going to Washington, D.C. or our universities. He'd be coming to the house of God to set things in order and line it up straight to say, here's what the focus is supposed to be about. So look at Jesus' response in verse 13. This is just a very short story, and he's almost wrapping it up. This is his response. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den, not a marketplace, not a bank, not a stockyard, my house, my house. It belongs to me. That's what Jesus is crying out. You're in my yard and you're taking my glory and you're corrupting it. This is my place. It's what I possess. And he's trying to draw their attention right back in to say, what is wrong with you? This is where we come to worship God. The fact of the matter is, some of us have allowed things like this into our life and have clouded our vision and taken away focus. There's individuals in our church, myself included, who need to evaluate and say, God, is there anything that is drawing my attention away from you that is so corrupting my walk with you that I can't even see it anymore? That's where the heart starts at. God forbid that Jesus would ever have to say to me, what are you doing? Keep your focus right. Every single one of us need to approach this story with that same set of eyes saying, 
man, God, is there something that I'm not seeing? Because we are the house of God now. That's what Paul wrote when he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, don't you know that you are the temple of the living God? That the Holy Spirit dwells within you? So you're you're the house of God. You are the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. You're the entity that worships the creator. You don't have to go to the temple anymore. So what does God have to do to help us clean up our act? Look at Jesus' commitment to Scripture, church. He said, he's quoting the Old Testament, you are making it a robber's den. That comes from Jeremiah. There was a period of time when the nation of Israel was so far away from God that God had to actually chastise them because they were commonly practicing adultery fornication, worshiping idols, raising up images and worshiping things that were not God, and they didn't even know they had walked into it. So Jesus, or God, had to slap them upside the head. Look with me up on the screen. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered that you may do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord." Do you understand what Jesus is saying to these individuals? He's quoting the Old Testament saying, you've made God's temple into a place where the James gang can hide out. It's a cave for those who are extortionists and you've given robbers a place of refuge. He's checking their heart. Now set all that aside and look at this amazing contrast that comes up next. He's got all this power and now he combines it with compassion. Now understand, the courtyard is empty. Scripture says he chased them all out. I'm picturing tumbleweeds are blowing across now. It's quiet. Jesus is standing there. And who's there with him? Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. (laughs) Is that not amazing? He's chased out all the religiously associated people, and who's left? Those who are broken. And while they're awed by Jesus, they're not walking in fear of him. They understand they can still approach him. And he heals them. No sooner had they approached, and he begins healing. And so the religious people who are astonished at what's going on, look at what they do next. This is the last verses. Verse 15 But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hoshana to the son of David, they became indignant. (laughs) It's good to laugh, Jerry, because it is a laughing point. This word means furious. We can't have any of that healing going on here. What are you doing the work of God? How could they be so blind? Children here literally means boys, young boys celebrating, probably there for their first Passover, and they're doing just what they saw their parents do the day before. Hoshana, Hoshana, he's the leader, and they become indignant. 
this healing of the blind and the lame, as we learned last week, is amazing. And yet, these people of the world are so incensed by this that it's repugnant to them. Do you get that? That they absolutely can't figure out, they're so blind to what's going on that they become repugnant by this. They feel so superior that they think these people don't deserve his attention, let alone he should not be doing that here. Look with me at verse 16 in Jesus' response. And said to him, this is the Jews speaking, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? Remember my point from last week? Anytime God calls you to take bold action and step out and do something on his behalf, on behalf of the kingdom, it will cause division. People will not be able to figure it out because people are blind to the things of God. And it even causes division sometimes within the house of God. People don't understand when individuals boldly perform and act on God's behalf. That's what I said last week. That's what I'll say again this week. Anytime God calls you to do something, it will cause division. Do it anyway. Jesus did. That's the model he gave us. Do you hear what these children are saying? They're calling you the Messiah. Yeah, What's your problem? Didn't you know on a scripture it says the mouth of nursing babies and infants will praise him? He's quoting scripture back to the scriptural authorities. He's still dealing with the people in the house of God. See, the real problem is they could not stand Jesus and wanted nothing to do with him. Look with me again at the scripture we shared last week, 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this ends on a really sad note. Come to me at verse 17. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. They wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. So he left them. There's no, hey, you're the Messiah. Let's sit down and talk. Can we have a Beaners together? I'm sorry, Big B. Okay, change the name. Can we fellowship together? No. Why did he leave them? He left them because they wanted nothing to do with him. God will not force himself on anyone. So what do the chief priests do with this now? They've got this upset market. They've got Jesus proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. And how do they respond? Mark also records the same story. Look with me on the screen at Mark chapter 11. Verse 18 says, The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. So I have a self-evaluation question for you this morning before I let you go. Are you such a threat to the things of the world that the world would seek to destroy you? I have to ask myself that same question. Am I so boldly stepping forward for God that the world would say, cannot tolerate that guy anymore? 
That's what Jesus shows us here. And he is absolutely intolerant of their opinions. He is zealous for the things of God. You ever read this story and ask yourselves, where are the disciples during this? Are they, are they, they, do they have his backside? Are they carrying things for him? Are, are they helping kick people out? There's only one indication we get in the book of Mark, and it says, and the disciples took note of the scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. See, the disciples are watching this. How in the world did it affect them? It affected them and it affected them. If you step forward just a couple weeks in time, you'll find that when Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, and gone to heaven, that Peter and John walked back inside the same temple that Jesus had just cleaned out. And as they're walking into the gate, Scripture says in Acts chapter 3, the gate called Beautiful, they see a man who is lame laying next to the gate. And Peter turns to him, and Scripture says, casting his eyes upon him and fixing his gaze, he says to the man, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. I say, stand up and walk. And the man begins shouting and cheering and jumping. He's healed completely. And he follows Peter from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women, from there into the court of men, and thousands gather around. And Peter began to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. The same guy who just a couple weeks ago had denied him is now proclaiming Jesus in the temple, in front of Anus. 5,000 people came to Christ that day. That's what Acts chapter 3 says. I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 4 as we end this morning, and I'm going to show you how Anus responded to this situation because they took Peter and they arrested him and threw him in prison. Look with me up on the screen. Acts chapter 4 and verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Anus, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent. At that point, they took Peter and put him down in the center of the courtyard and asked him to answer for the way that he had healed the man the day before. And he said, I didn't do it. That was the power of God working through me. And he was healed by Jesus Christ, the one whom you crucified. And he spoke boldly to them. Now look with me at the very last verse, verse 13. This is the high priest observations. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Huh. Look at that word, now as they observed the confidence, parousia, the boldness. Peter, who had hidden and cowered away, is now bold on behalf of the kingdom. He saw Jesus do it. You've seen Jesus do it. And we understand now what it means to push the envelope into bold action on behalf of the kingdom. I will tell you, church, we're getting a reputation in this area as the church who's grown from 20 people to 503 years. I frankly don't want that reputation. I would like the reputation in which people would look at us and say, there's a group of people 
who have been with Jesus. And they are bold on behalf of the kingdom. You give me that reputation any day. That's what we strive for, whether we're 500 or 5,000, whether it's now or 20 years from now, if people look at New Hope, how great would it be for individuals to say, those people, man, are they bold on behalf of the kingdom. That's my desire for you this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we've looked deeply at your word and come to understand in a better way as best we can what happened in that day and that environment with Jesus being bold on behalf of the kingdom. Father, I ask for every individual who makes up New Hope Church, whether they're with us today or not able to, God, I ask that you instill in us a sense of passion for the things that are passionate to you. God, take our hearts and shape them and mold them in such a way that we reflect the nature and character of Jesus. Not just that we're bold, but that we're also graceful. The Father, give us the courage to step out and be bold on behalf of the kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.